I'm excited to be here. It was powerful, man. My brother here behind me, man, we were singing it out. We were trying to lead from the back here. And Pastor Jason was like, a, there was a tug of war. And the, the thing that struck us at the same time was God can do anything except fail. And when I thought about that, I was like, oh, my gosh, it literally floored me. Because literally he can do anything, but he cannot fail. And uh, that's just an encouraging thing to me, man. It just really blew my mind. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to the book of um, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at three, three or four verse scriptures and in two different books. So we're going to first look at a scripture in Galatians, then we're going to look at a scripture in Ephesians. But before we do that, I want to tell you great news, man. Uh, there's a, Fitzmorris families is adding someone to their family. That's my son's baby. Doesn't it look like grandpa? He's like... He's got, he's got a big head like me, you know what I mean? I just, uh, I'm excited. We don't know whether it's a boy or girl. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to love that kid no matter what. That, you know, I'm just, I'm excited. Mm, I want to kiss him. Um, you know, before when it was just like this little egg, my daughter used to call it the molecule. And it was funny because we love this baby even though the doctors wouldn't call it a baby. But we know the difference. It is a baby from conception. It is a human being from conception. And uh, it was precious in God's sight, and it is precious in God's sight. He is, or she is, thank you, Satan. So uh, let's pray, because we got to pray, and then i got a little bit to go through here, so I want us to kind of hit all the points. Father God, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for everything, Lord God. It's, it seems to be there's a new era of encouragement here. I think the people are coming out. I think part of it has to do with the fact that it's not 90 degrees below zero. And, uh, you know, it was nice. The sky was so beautiful this morning. It was nice to feel not bitter cold. It was nice. It was clear and crisp. But, Lord, no matter what, even if it is cold out here, that, Lord God, this is the day that you have given us that we should rejoice in. And, Lord God, Sundays... When the saints come to worship with you, it's easy for us to remember uh, that it's, it, it's all about you. And we should be giving thanks and leading that huge praises unto you. So I'm asking you, Father God, in your presence that you transform us, that you encourage us, that you lift us up. Lord God, I want you to instill this idea in our mind that you will not fail in the life of those who you have claimed for yourself. You said it. Paul recognized it. He who began the good work in us will see it through to its completion until the day that Christ returns. Lord, man, that's a promise, Lord God. So that means we have to be sincere in showing up. So, Lord, I'm asking that you would do all the heavy lifting, and we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. All right, let's go to that, chap that chapter in Ephesians, uh, no, Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 26. And the heading is, you are sons of God. I want you to remember this, this whole prophetic pause series, everything that we do in a prophetic pause, that means if we have like, we have a series for four weeks or five weeks, once that's over, we're going to come right back to the prophetic pause, and we're going to continue on. And I call them the, the marks of sonship. I want to just start out with this. If I told you that I was hit by a car at 60 miles an hour coming here, and I looked like this, not a scuff on me, my clothes are not ripped in any way, shape, or form, would you believe me? No, you wouldn't. 
right? Because you're not, you're, there's got to be some kind of outward evidence. And the truth of the matter is, is this. If I have been impacted by the most forceful human being who ever set foot on this earth, I'm going to show evidence that he actually intersected with me at some point. Am I not right? So let's look at verse 26. Paul speaking, he says, I want you to remember you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The reason he's saying that is because there's a group of teachers who were very religious who were telling them, no, you're not sons of God. You didn't even go through the first step to become part of the family. And Paul's like, no. There's no prior step to Christ. It's either you have met Christ and you surrender to him or you're not in. Don't tell me there's three steps before you can actually get to the one who can save you. No, no, no. It's either through him or it's not. I hate, I don't want to say I hate, but I, I don't like when I ask people, are you confident that you're going to spend eternity with God? Well, I hope so. What do you mean you hope so? Either he saves you or you save you. You must pick. And I'm going to tell you the truth. For me, I got to pick that a lot. I got to pick who's going to be the one to get me to heaven. Is it going to be God who picks me, who saves me through his son? Or is it going to be my effort? Or is it like I like to believe, kind of like a mixture of the two? When I'm doing good, I'm really sure I'm going to heaven. But when I'm not doing so great or I'm kind of on the low ebb, well, then I'm not really sure. You, listen, either you're in the church or you're out of the church. And it's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And he's saying this. So verse 27, for all who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed themselves with Christ. That means you can no longer see them. They are clothed. You cannot see my body, thank God, because of the clothes that cover me. Christ's righteousness covers us. That's what it meant in the song we were singing. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. That's what that means. He accomplished our salvation. There, now therefore, is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ. If is not, I hope. He's reminding them, it's a presupposition. He's like, if you belong to Christ, then this is true of you. Well, I belong to Christ. Well, then it's true of you, but I don't feel it. But it, it's true. I get you don't feel it. I don't feel it sometimes, but, but it's true. It doesn't matter. Truth doesn't need our acquiescence. I don't have to say, well, I know that that's true. That's where it's true. No, no, no. Either it's true or it's not true. And Jesus is the truth. For you are all one in Christ if you belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed. We're going to talk about Abraham's promises. And you are heirs according to the promise. And I'm going to talk about this thing right here. If you look at that out to the side. That, in my understanding, is the promise of Abraham. Now let's go down to verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the time had fully come, God had sent his firstborn, his only son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of being children. Because you are now sons or children, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit now calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You're a son. And since you're a son, you've been made an heir. That means all that is his is now yours. It is a legal decree. How many times have you met kids who are in homes and they're like, I feel like I'm not loved by anybody. You're like, well, you're, you're part of the family. And I still don't feel it. 
I, I feel like my mom and my dad love me. Are you their kid or not? Yes, you are their child. You're their child. That means you are loved. And I understand feelings. I'm not trying to overlook feelings. But one of the things that I have learned is I cannot live my life with my feelings ruling my behavior. Because when I do, I'm passionate, man. I'm a passionate guy. I will be high, higher than clouds. And then just as I can go high, I go real low. And once I go low, man, if I allow myself to stay there, man, there seems to be no bottom. So I have to find this place that I know is absolute truth that is not, uh, it's not impinged upon by how I feel, whether high or low. God calls us to live sober lives. Sober lives means, hey, this is the truth. I know it's the truth. I'm going to stick with the truth, and I'm going to fix on the truth. Therefore, I'm going to try to remind myself not to go too crazy when I'm too high or go too low when I'm low, right? All right, now let's go to Ephesians. I'm sorry I was giving you a whole lot of background there, but I want you to understand the scripture. So in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, this kind of talks about the attribute we're talking about today. It's a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Paul's saying, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He, this is a literal sense. He's in jail. But can I say something? I know I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And when you think to yourself, man, you're a prisoner because someone's forcing you to do something, there is no greater bond to keep you somewhere than the bond of love. None. None, none, none. When you're in jail, you're only there because someone's sticking a gun to your head and making you do this. Right? But when we're prisoners of Christ, the door's wide open. You can walk out anytime you want. You can make your own rules. Say, I'm going to come here on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but the rest of the time it's for me. God doesn't do nothing. He doesn't say, hey, listen, but I'm going to tell you this. You don't do it. You know why? Because this love has been implanted in your life. And somehow you're like, man, it just seems inappropriate for me to be anywhere but here. I'm literally a prisoner of love. And I want you to understand it. That's what Paul's saying. I'm a prisoner because of Jesus Christ. I realize that I owe all that I have to him. That's what gives birth to every good thing we are in our life. That's what causes us to be very devoted to God, but not obnoxiously pointing to ourselves, to the world around us. Nobody likes the religious person that's secretly and subconsciously patting themselves on the chest and saying, how wonderful I am and how not worthy you are. Man, I'm telling you, this is a powerful thing. That's why it changes the world. As a prisoner of Christ, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient with one another. You know what that word patient is? It's not with time. I want you to think about this. I want someone behind you that's clapping your ear. Every time. But remember in high school, they used to do this one thing. They come up behind you to catch your books, and they go, and your books would go flying down. You're, I'm going to get you. And you know what? That's, that's, that's what he's saying be patient with. When there's things and people around us that are twapping our ear or knocking down our books, he's saying be patient with one another. Um, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Peace is not tranquility. It's harmony. Let me tell you something. All the musicians are talented up here. But the greatest musician has to learn to amend their playing for the least mature and skillful player for it to sound good. 
Let me say that again. Whoever's the best musician up there has to amend, actually get themselves lower or in a different place for the person who's just a tiny bit off scale so that the music can come through the best. That's a beautiful, beautiful illustration of what's going on. There's just one body. Paul says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. For there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. He's saying, hey, look, listen, don't think of yourselves as individuals anymore. You are a cell in a body. My pinky finger matters. It matters to my whole body. You know how I know that's true? Go home, take a hammer and smash it. You will feel it in your toes. That's the truth. You know, my pancreas is about yay big. But if that pancreas stops going, you know what you get? Diabetes. And then uh, lots of crazy things happen in your body. You think, well, that's just tiny. It doesn't really matter. No, no, no. It matters. And that's what he's saying. You matter. You're important to the body's overall health and function. Don't think you belong to yourself anymore. He says, you who are called to one hope, just as there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God, and there's one Father. You don't have one Father, and I have another, because that's what the legalists were saying. Well, you have one Father, but I have another Father. No, you don't. Either God is our Father, or we are out of the family. And Jesus Christ makes both Jew and Gentile sons and daughters of God. That's what he's, he's reiterating over and over and over and over. He's fiercely defensive of the gospel. One God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Man, that's a great way to put it. Man, listen, Jesus is working in me just as he's working in you. You know, I should be looking for you to be a blessing in my life just as I want to be a blessing in your life. But can I do that? You can't do that if we are all, we are all sealed vessels i want you to think of this think of the woman that came to jesus and uh she was most likely a prostitute and she broke open that 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 sealed bottle and she poured out all of her ointment on his feet and everyone's like man this is really appalling that she would even do this and he would allow it but i want you to think about this because this woman was so broken before christ because she felt so much of the love that god had to offer her in in this father's love, the father's love was poured over this poor woman. Everybody in a block area smelt the perfume of this woman's love for Christ. You see that? That's what we need to be. So if we're closed off to one another, we're, we're, missing, we're missing something. We're missing something. And then it says this, but to each of one of us, grace has been given as Christ appropriated it. And this is why it says, but he ascended on high, has led a captives in his train, and he has given gifts to men. This is God's word. All right, for the next three weeks, we're going to be taking a prophetic pause. Prophecy, I want to just make three brief moments of mentions about prophecy. Prophecy is a scary thing because I believe that it's gotten out of line over the last 200 years. You can't go on YouTube without bumping into a prophet. And everybody kind of wants to be a prophet. And I'm like, you have obviously not read the Bible because those who were prophets were usually run out of town and they were usually murdered. You don't want to be a prophet, but everyone's like, I want to be a prophet because I want to tell you all the good things that I think God is going to bring into your life. But biblical prophecy is a little bit different. We 
it's a little bit different. It is largely, not always, but largely given to the people of God to open the eyes of those who are in the place of not wanting to see the things that God is clearly showing them that need to be corrected or worked on. That's what prophecy is for. He's like, I'm showing you things that you're not paying attention. You know why? Because you don't want to see it. Because if you do see it, you're going to have to do something about it. I want you to understand also, prophecy is birthed from God's desire as your father to wake us up before we crash into a rocky shoreline or shipwreck our faith. Here's my proof. Want to read two good chapters? Read first and second Revelation. Chapter 1 and 2. It's prophecy. All of it is prophecy. Actually, some of it is, is it, it, it's a direct encounter with John and, and Jesus. But then it turns to prophecy. Jesus is speaking through John to his church. And the first church that he speaks to is the church of Ephesus. Now listen to what he says. This is in Revelation 2.3. I have, you have persevered and I, as you have endured hardship for my name's sake. He's commending them. He's like, great job. You have not grown weary. That means they're constantly serving him. But then he drops the bomb. He said, yet I hold this against you. You've turned away from your first love. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, you are a highly effective church. You are doing what I want you to do in the city and in the area. You're growing. You're a vibrant church. But something has happened. Even though you've done this and you've done this great thing, these were people who were like, man, you can't just come and teach in our church. We are orthodox and doctrinally sound, and we're not going to let anyone come in and pervert the truth. And Jesus was like, well done. Good job. You did an excellent job with that. But, but, they had lost something. The love and tender-hearted compassion of Christ was forgotten by the saints in the city. They forgot how they got to where they were. They were doing all the right stuff, and somehow they started to forget that they too were recipients of grace. When I forget I need Jesus Christ, we will always need him, it will never diminish in any way. I cannot think of myself as higher or better than anyone, ever. So there was this kind of like hierarchy. There was this little coldness. There was a certain amount of, of uncaringness. They, they had started to feel toward each other. Uh, 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 no longer, it, it was the love of God was no longer affecting the hearts of his church. And he was warning them. Now some people believe he was warning them that they would take away their salvation. That is not, it does not, it is not congruent with the scripture. You cannot lose your salvation. If you have been given it, it is yours because it was never yours to begin with. It was Christ's. You cannot lose your salvation. There are false professors. But once again, I mean, I don't, I'm not here to start asking people to question their salvation. I want to encourage them to do it, to engage, to really fully grasp everything that God has for them. I don't want to discourage them and make them run away. But I'm going to tell you this. What he's saying to them is, if you do not reconnect to my love, if you do not remember where you have come from, if you do not feel my love and interact in this intimacy with me, I'm going to shut you down. That's how churches die, you guys. They die. They have people who come in, they're very, very sound, it's very, you know, 
got it all kind of dealt with this. But you know what, though? The people who come in, they never, ever sense the love of God in a way that kind of draws them out of, of the tomb. Can I tell you something? I don't feel that even the tiniest bit here. So I want to say that's great. But one thing is we have to do is we have to remind ourselves. We have to constantly be in a place to where we recognize certain behaviors and attitudes that could bring that about in our hearts. Amen? Okay. My great sorrow, the great sorrow that I want to talk about is the unhealthy saint. This is the person who is never connected. It, it bugs my heart to no end. This is the person who is very obscure. I see them, don't know their names. They never stick around. They come five minutes to, leave two seconds after. And it's like, wait a minute, I, I just got to know who, where are they? How can we engage? How can we grab them out? This really bugs me. There's very little participation in this woman, in this person. And can I also say, oftentimes, when you talk to them, they're very critical about the church. Well, I don't do this because of the church does that and this and that. I'm like, man, I don't know. Um, I don't know. These are people who cannot seem to fully appropriate grace. And grace's greatest attribute is our sonship. When I say that we're sons, I want us to remember we were once far away. There was no desire to find God. I tell you that all the time. I say that, listen, if the only way that I could have ever come to Christ is if he opened up my ears to hear him call. There was never anything inside of me that would say, boy, you know what, today, Tuesday, I wake up and I realize I need Jesus Christ. I will never say that in my own strength. He's the one who has to chase me down and he has to convince me it's true by opening my eyes. And can I tell you, sometimes when you look back at the path that he takes, it took 10, 15 years to make it happen. Is that true of me or is it true of everybody? I used to have this one guy around me. He used to preach at the Mercantile Exchange. I used to, man, this was the closest thing I ever said to prayer in my life. I was like, please, Lord, shut him up. Because he talked, man, and it would just like, it would hurt my heart. Because he was talking about all the things I love to do. I used to call him Peter Pentecostal. I'm so sorry. I was so angry with the guy. But guess what? This was the guy that God was using to open up my eyes to the truth. I just didn't know it for five years. I didn't know it. All right. We were once far away. We were once excluded. We were once not even allowed entry. Do you know for a non-Jew to walk past the Temple of Solomon, the courtyard of Solomon, so if they would have recognized that you were a Gentile, you know what they would have done? Drag you out and beat you to death. Drag you out. Hey, this guy's he's partially Greek. Well, his mother's a Jew. Doesn't matter. Grab him. Get him out. The men would be so pumped up, they would kick and stomp you to death. That's exactly what it said. Under penalty of death, no non-Jew is allowed past this point. And can I tell you something? I want to tell you another aspect. I, I don't really have any time for it, but... The Jews thought that they were close to God, but the truth of the matter is if you look at the temple, they weren't close to God at all. They might have been a little closer than me, but they certainly weren't allowed entry. But now through Jesus Christ, that wall of separation, that veil that separated us from a holy God has been torn down. Man, we come into the presence of God. That's how we're transformed. Amen? All right, so now, because... We have now felt the tender embrace of God, the relationship of God the Father. 
now produces in us beauty of character. I want to just go to this really quickly. This is how the, the promise of Abraham works. It is the righteousness of the love of Christ that is planted in our hearts. He chases us down, wakes us up through the Holy Spirit, and by his Holy Spirit coming into us, giving us new birth, now we have the ability to grab hold of him by faith. See, that's the way it works. At least that's the way I understand it to work. I'm not here to argue with you. If you seek it works another way, I think you... Listen, I don't have a corner on all the truth, but I see it this way. But once Christ is planted in my heart, it then produces a desire in me for the beauty of character. I don't know about you, but my character is deeply flawed. And I don't, apart from grace, want to even look at that. Man, I'm telling you, I talk about celebrate recovery all the time, but... Man, I have never met a group of Christians in my life who are so willing to humbly talk about things that God is revealing in their heart. I listened to a read Friday night. I was glued. This guy's been around forever. And he's now saying, yeah, after so many years, God's showing, up, showing me another part that needs to be surrendered. I'm like, man, that's humility. That's the way it works. He keeps showing us. He keeps showing us this different area. It's like a loving father. He's like, I want to bring beauty and character. You know why? Because when he produces beauty and character in my life, what happens is I have harmony in my home. When we have harmony in home, that means husbands stay where they are. Why? Because there's love and there's commitment and there's sacrifice. And wives, they don't have a hard time. There's no competition or fighting for control. There's no antagonism. You know why? Because we embrace our roles. We see them as God-given. And our children grow up in that. And they're like, you know, this is pretty stable. This is pretty secure. And you know what this does? It makes me feel like I could grow real good. You know what? Why do you think we have an entire generation? I don't, listen, I don't want to be. They don't want to get married. Because there was never home. They never saw harmony in a home. You know what harmony in a home could be? Man, I could preach on this alone for an hour and a half. Sometimes harmony in a home is where the father might go to work and the mother says, yeah, we could use a little extra money, but I think it would be better for me to be home with my two children. You know, it worked. I remember when my wife told me this after our second child was, or second child was born. She's like, I don't think I'm going to go back to work. And I'm like, well, What? I go, listen, man, we all got to pitch in here. She's like, I am. I'm going to pitch in with my kids, our kids. And I was like, what, you know, I love my wife, but you can't tell her anything. <laughs> and let's be honest, she's not a kid. So she's like, I don't take orders from you. She does, but, but she does it in the most loving way. <laughs> yeah, listen. So anyways, can I tell you something? Looking back on my life and my children's life, it paid off huge dividends. Huge dividends. Now my family is following the Lord. In a couple of weeks, my whole family is going to lead worship at the church because, man, they serve the Lord as if we were all on mission together. You as parents want that very same thing. <coughs> I love this lady. Brings her kids. This kid, this guy's kid, he's not a kid. He comes since he was a little boy <coughs> because the mom was like, taking the children to church. Now she's taking the grandchildren. She wants to work in the Sunday school thing. This kid, this guy right here, he was so nice to his little brother. I was like, man, these ones right here, they're, they're paying attention. Like, I know they're scholars, and I don't quite understand kids that understand and learn good, 
but man, they're beautiful kids. Man, this is harmony in home. And when there's harmony in home, listen, this is how it works. Bigger, because it gets bigger. It's like a big, huge puddle. You get order in the nation. Why do you think our nation is so disrupted? There's no stability. There's no pillar of family anymore. And then what? Once there's order in a nation, God will bring peace in the world. That's how the covenant promise of Abraham works. Starts with Jesus entering into us and in harmony in the home, order in the nation, peace in the world. That's how it does it. And guess what? We're an integral part of that plan. All right. Remember, write this down. It's never about perfection. It's always about a sincere desire for progress. That means that you and I must be willingly committed to a group that declares growth. They, got, they have a group that literally just meets to eat with each other. Do you know that eating is littered through the Bible? Do you know why? Because that's where you get to know people. Bible studies are awesome. They're great. They're needed. Man, that's the life screen. That's where God's power is at. But I'm telling you, if all I do is study the word with God and I don't open my heart with the person I'm studying it with, do you know what will happen? I'll get a lot of brain knowledge, and it will produce fruit, but it won't produce the same amount of fruit or the same flourishing as an openness, as a true community. Why? Because you know what, Google? I will never tell you the truth until I know you well enough, until I can trust you with the stuff that I trust you with can i get an amen today that's the truth that's what we want to become do you know why because the dead will come in and they'll go this is it i knew it existed i just couldn't find it now i found it so let's go on i'm sorry i, I talked so long all right on new year's day i talked about the first attribute of a child of God, and it's seeing God as a loving father. He's not a taskmaster, he is never a tyrant, and he's never a trickster. That means he won't pull the rug out from underneath our feet if we do all the right things. And can I tell you something? I've heard that so many times, and I fought that. Sadly, I fought that. You know, that's one of the enemy's tactics. He wants you to think the worst of God. Remember, garden, the garden? He's like, hey, you're God's holding on. I'm just saying, man, you are guys are the best you know what that's what happens when you talk too much you know, your throat gets full of dust but anyways that's what he does is he tries to trick us into believing hey guys right he's holding out on you he wants you to die yesenia he wants you to die to yourself if you die to yourself who's gonna look out for you you could be just like him you don't need this guy Man, I'm telling you, that's what he wants us to believe. He wants us to believe lies about God, but not us. We who have tasted the goodness of God know that our God is a good God, and he does not ever cheat us or rob us. Our God wants to be our loving father. That's what John 3.16 tells me. It says that he had designs on you and me and to love us and love us into who we're supposed to be like a father before anything was created. All the perversions in life are birthed from us being separated from the love of our heavenly father. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. But through Jesus Christ, man, I don't have to live an alien anymore. Well, I'm not doing so great. Man, I'm telling you, when my kids don't do great, I don't disown them. And I'm Thomas Morris. Man, my guy, you know, listen to what I said to my daughter. She had this thing, and she goes, you know, Dad, thanks for backing me on that. I go, listen, 
man, I'm grateful for that you did it right. But even if you did it wrong, I'm going to just tell you something. Even if I have to visit you in jail, you'll always know. I'll never turn my back on you. And that's the way my father in heaven is. You think that that's a joke? No, that isn't. That's absolutely true because he has covered us with the righteousness and the beauty and the love of Christ. That's why I can face all the things, the challenges to getting beauty and character. If I don't have anything to secure me, ain't no way I'm going to open up my heart for that stuff. Man, those are the things that I have counted on to be my gods all my life. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. The orphan heart. Listen. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Wait, when we live in the light of the reality of who God is as a wonderful, loving father that is always working to benefit his family, even through discipline and trials, it gives us a joyful heart. A joyful heart, even in difficult times, will never lose the drive to continue on. Sometimes we lose the drive to continue on. You know why? Because we make the mistake of thinking, well, God is punishing me or he's abandoning me. That is not what a God who is perfect does to his kids. Listen, a joyful heart will never get up. A joyful heart will always love well. Do you know why? You, when you are loved well, it's easy to give out what you have in abundance. If I don't love you, it's most likely because I don't have love. I cannot give you something I do not have or I'm living a deficit of. If I'm holding you to a standard of perfection, you know why? Because I'm holding myself to a standard of perfection. I'm not living up to my own expectations. You'll never do it. But if I'm loved well, man, I can love you well. That's, that's the way God does things in Christ Jesus. Listen, a joyful heart can usually face difficulties with a positive coincidence. Let me give you a quick story, and I've got seven minutes left. We used to live in a house where, oh, no, we still live in there, but we used to get floods. When it would rain hard, we would get water in our basement from sewer backup. Or when it got so bad that at the end, we would get sometimes three and four feet of water in our basement. And it wasn't just regular water, if you know what I'm talking about. And one time there was a flood, like Noah could have been going down the street with the ark, right? And my wife, in the morning, I call her up. I go, hey, did we get a, uh, she's like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, oh, great, great, great. How was it? She's like, well, it was raining last night. I'm like, no way. Yeah, I know it was raining because we, you know, we're in the city, same city, you know? <laughs> and I go, well, thank God we didn't flood. And she's like, oh, no, we flooded. And I go, why are you so cheerful? And she, I go, how much? She goes, well, I'd prefer if you just came and see. <laughs> well, it was up to my fourth stair. That was four and a half feet. And the stuff that was in that water, yeah, if you want to get typhus. <laughs> and we were all brokenhearted. I mean, everything went down the line. They cleaned us out. It was gross and disgusting. And my kids were dragging us. I went downstairs, and I looked around. I'll never forget it. I said to myself, I said this. I said, you know what, kids? I go, we could do this two ways. We can either push through this with our faces down, beat up, and like, man, we just got to do it kind of like we're being punished again. Or we could put on some worship music, and we could believe that God is going to do something amazing through this. I put on David Crowder, and we started worshiping the Lord. I kid you not, we tore that 
Thanksgiving. We had a hose down there. We cleaned it up. Everyone was like, woo! We were praising the Lord in this pit. It was a pit. It smelled like a sewer. Why? Because I knew of my father's love for me. It wasn't where he was punishing me for something I did five years ago or even five minutes ago where he was not looking at some other place and didn't care about me. That's what earthly fathers do. He's like, I'm a perfect father. Not only did I allow this to happen, I meant for it to do something awesome in your life. My son tells that story to this day. He's a good husband. Why? Because he learned these lessons. You think it's for me? No. All right, that's where we're going to end. Five minutes. I want to just say this. Remember, these are the things that happen when we know that we have a father who is in heaven, who loves us. He is not neglectful. He is not unnecessarily harsh, nor is he unnecessarily restrictful. That means he may say no to you, but it's not to pull back good things. It's to keep you from injury. So let's get ready to worship because our Father, our God, is not manipulative and he manages his home with love. He is always working to truly benefit his family, even through disciplines and trials. I rem- like I told you, when you're with me, <laughs> I, like I, I, got, I got pages and pages. So that's okay. Guess what? God willing, I'm going to be with you for a little while because you're going to get it all. Uh, you know what? When I see the glory of God, hey, you know, let's give him a round of applause. Because can I tell you something? Anyone who's connected with him, they're always going to bring this. Because he is a never-ending source of what is good, something that is life-giving. He says, anyone who puts their trust and faith in me, streams of living water will gush from their loins. Man, do you need that? Because I do. This guy works Ubering eight hours and then he goes to school. Man, he gets t- tired, right? Well, that's what we need. We need the, the gushing of God's spirit. So let's stand up and let's worship the Lord. Amen.